Chapter 28 From the Diaries of Lindsay Mills As far away from home as I was, my thoughts were consumed with Lindsay. I've been wary of telling her story, the story of what happened to her once I was gone, the FBI interrogations, the surveillance, the press attention, the online harassment, the confusion and pain, the anger and sadness. Finally, I realized that only Lindsay herself should be the person to recount that period. No one else has the experience. But more than that, no one else has the right. Luckily, Lindsay has kept a diary since adolescence, using it to record her life and draft her art. She has graciously agreed to let me include a few pages here. In the entries that follow, all names have been changed except those of family, some typos fixed, and a few redactions made. Otherwise, this is how it was from the moment that I left Hawaii. 5-22-2013 Stopped in at Kmart to get a lay, trying to welcome Wendy with proper aloha spirit, but I'm pissed. Ed's been planning his mother's visit for weeks. He's the one who invited her. I was hoping he'd be there when I woke up this morning. On the drive back to Waipahu from the airport, Wendy was worried. She's not used to him having to go away on a moment's notice. I tried to tell her this was usual, but it was usual when we lived overseas, not in Hawaii. And I can't remember any other time that Ed was away and wasn't in touch. We went to a nice dinner to distract ourselves, and Wendy talked about how she thought Ed was on medical leave. It didn't make any sense to her that he'd be called away for work while on medical leave. The moment we got home, Wendy went to bed. I checked my phone and found I had three missed calls from an unknown number and one missed call from a long foreign number. No voicemails. I googled the long foreign number. Ed must be in Hong Kong. 5-24-2013 Wendy was home all day alone, thoughts just running circles in her brain. I feel bad for her and can only console myself by thinking how Ed would handle having to entertain my own mother by himself. Over dinner, Wendy kept asking me about Ed's health, which I guess is understandable given her own history of epilepsy. She said she's worried that he had another seizure, and then she started crying, and then I started crying. I'm just realizing that I'm worried too. But instead of epilepsy, I'm thinking, what if he's off having an affair? Who is she? Just try and get through this visit and have a good time. Take a puddle jumper to the big island at Kilauea, the volcano is planned. Once Wendy goes back, reassess things. 6-3-2013. Brought Wendy to the airport to fly back to Maryland. She didn't want to go back, but she has work. I took her as far as I could go and hugged her. I didn't want to let go of the hug. Then she got in line for security. Came home to find Ed's Skype status has changed to, sorry, but it had to be done. I don't know when he changed it. Could have been today. Could have been last month. I just checked on Skype and happened to notice it. I'm crazy enough to think he's sending me a message. 6-7-2013. Woke up to a call from NSA Special Agent Megan Smith asking me to call her back about Ed. Still feeling sick with fever. I had to drop off my car at the auto body shop and Todd gave me a ride back on his Ducati. When we pulled onto the street, I saw a white government vehicle in the driveway and government agents talking to our neighbors. I've never even met the neighbors. I don't know why, but my first instinct was to tell Todd to keep driving. I ducked my head down to pretend to look for something in my purse. We went to Starbucks, where Todd pointed out a newspaper, something about the NSA. I tried to read the headlines, but my paranoia just ran wild. Is that why the white SUV was in my driveway? Is that the same SUV in the parking lot outside this Starbucks? Should I even be writing this stuff down? Went home again and the SUV was gone. Took some meds and realized I hadn't eaten. In the middle of lunch, cops showed up at the kitchen window. Through the window, I could hear them radioing that someone was inside the residence. By someone, they meant me. I opened the front door to two agents and a Hawaii Police Department officer. They were frightening. The HPD officer searched through the house as Agent Smith asked me about Ed, who'd been due back at work on May 31st. 
The HPD officer said it was suspicious when a workplace reported someone missing before the person's spouse or girlfriend did. He was looking at me like I killed Ed. He was looking around the house for his body. Agent Smith asked if she could see all the computers in the house, and that made me angry. I told her she could get a warrant. They left the house, but camped out on the corner. San Diego, 6-8-2013. I got a little afraid that TSA wouldn't let me leave the island. The TVs in the airport were all full of news about the NSA. Once on board the plane, I emailed Agent Smith and the HPD missing persons detective that my grandma was having open-heart surgery, requiring me to be off-island for a few weeks. The surgery isn't scheduled until the end of the month, and it's in Florida, not San Diego, but this was the only excuse I could think of for getting to the mainland. It was a better excuse than saying, I just need to be with my best friend Sandra, and also it's her birthday. When the wheels left the ground, I fell into a momentary coma of relief. When I landed, I had a raging fever. Sandra picked me up. I hadn't told her anything because my paranoia was off the charts, but she could tell that something was up, that I wasn't just visiting her for her birthday. She asked me if Ed and I had broken up. I answered, maybe. 6-9-2013. I got a phone call from Tiffany. She asked how I was doing and said she was worried about me. I didn't understand. She got quiet. Then she asked if I'd seen the news. She told me Ed had made a video and was on the homepage of the Huffington Post. Sandra hooked up her laptop to the flat screen. I calmly waited for the 12-minute YouTube video to load. And then there he was, real, alive. I was shocked. He looked thin, but he sounded like his old self, the old Ed, confident and strong, like how he was before this last tough year. This was the man I loved, not the cold, distant ghost I'd recently been living with. Sandra hugged me, and I didn't know what to say. We stood in silence. We drove out to Sandra's birthday barbecue at her cousin's house on this pretty hill south of the city, right on the Mexican border. Gorgeous place, and I could barely see any of it. I was shutting down, not knowing how to even begin to parse the situation. We arrived to friendly faces that had no clue what I was going through on the inside. Ed, what have you done? How can you come back from this? I was barely present for all the party small talk. My phone was blowing up with calls and texts. Dad, Mom, Wendy. Driving back up to San Diego from the barbecue, I drove Sandra's cousin's Durango, which Sandra needs this week to move. As we drove, a black SUV followed us, and a police car pulled Sandra's car over, which was the car I'd come in. I just kept driving the Durango, hoping I knew where I was going because my phone was already dead from all the calls. 6-10-2013 I knew Sandra's mother Eileen was important in local politics, but I didn't know she was also a fucking gangster. She's been taking care of everything, while we were waiting for her contacts to recommend a lawyer, I got a call from the FBI, an agent named Chuck Landowski, who asked me what I was doing in San Diego. Eileen told me to hang up. The agent called back, and I picked up, even though Eileen said I shouldn't. Agent Chuck said he didn't want to show up at the house unannounced, so he was just calling out of courtesy to tell us that agents were coming. This sent Eileen into overdrive. She's so goddamn tough, it's amazing. She had me leave my phone at the house, and we took her car and drove around to think. Eileen got a text from a friend of hers recommending a lawyer, a guy named Jerry Farber, and she handed me her phone and had me call him. A secretary picked up, and I told her that my name was Lindsay Mills, and I was the girlfriend of Edward Snowden and needed representation. The secretary said, oh, let me put you right through. It was funny to hear the recognition in her voice. Jerry picked up the phone and asked how he could help. I told him about the FBI calls, and he asked for the agent's name so he could talk to the feds. While we waited to hear back from Jerry, Eileen suggested we go get burner phones, one to use with family and friends, one to use with Jerry. After the phones, Eileen asked which bank I kept my money at. We drove to the nearest branch, and she had me withdraw all of my money immediately in case the feds froze my accounts. 
I went and took out all my life savings, split between cashier's checks and cash. Eileen insisted I split the money like that, and I just followed her instructions. The bank manager asked me what I needed all that cash for, and I said life. I really wanted to say STFU, but I decided if I was polite, I'd be forgettable. I was concerned that people were going to recognize me since they were showing my face alongside Ed's on the news. When we got out of the bank, I asked Eileen how she'd become such an expert at what to do when you're in trouble. She told me, very chill, you get to know these things as a woman. Like you always take the money out of the bank when you're getting a divorce. We got some Vietnamese takeout and took it back to Eileen's house and ate it on the floor in the upstairs hallway. Eileen and Sandra plugged in their hair dryers and kept them blowing to make noise as we whispered to each other, just in case they were listening in on us. Lawyer Jerry called and said we had to meet with the FBI today. Eileen drove us to his office, and on the way, she noticed we were being followed. It made no sense. We were going to a meeting to talk to the feds. But also the feds were behind us, two SUVs and a Honda Accord without plates. Eileen got the idea that maybe they weren't the FBI. She thought that maybe they were some other agency or even a foreign government trying to kidnap me. She started driving fast and erratically, trying to lose them, but every traffic light was turning red just when we approached it. I told her that she was being crazy. She had to slow down. There was a plainclothes agent by the door of Jerry's building. He had government written all over him. We went up in the elevator, and when the door opened, three men were waiting. Two of them were agents. One of them was Jerry. He was the only man who shook hands with me. Jerry told Eileen that she couldn't come with us to the conference room. He'd call her when we were finished. Eileen insisted that she'd wait. She sat in the lobby with an expression on her face like she was ready to wait for a million years. On the way to the conference room, Jerry took me aside and said he'd negotiated limited immunity, which I said was pretty meaningless, and he didn't disagree. He told me never to lie, and that when I didn't know what to say, I should say I don't know and let him talk. Agent Mike had a grin that was a bit too kind, while Agent Leland kept looking at me like I was an experiment and he was studying my reactions. Both of them creeped me out. They started with questions about me that were so basic, it was like they were just trying to show me that they already knew everything about me. Of course they did. That was Ed's point. The government always knows everything. They had me talk about the last two months, twice, and then when I was finished with the timeline, Agent Mike asked me to start all over from the beginning. I said, the beginning of what? He said, tell me how you met. 6-11-2013 Coming out of the interrogation, exhausted, late at night, with days of interrogation ahead of me. They wouldn't tell me how many exactly. Eileen drove us to meet Sandra for dinner at some diner, and as we left downtown, we noticed we still had our tails. Eileen tried to lose them by speeding and making illegal U-turns again, and I begged her to stop. I thought her driving like that just made me look worse. It made me look suspicious. But Eileen is a stubborn mama bear. In the parking lot of the diner, Eileen banged on the windows of the surveillance vehicles and yelled that I was cooperating so there was no reason for them to be following. It was a little embarrassing, like when your mother sticks up for you in school, but mostly I was just in awe. The nerve to go up to a vehicle with federal agents and tell them off. Sandra was at a table in back, and we ordered and talked about media exposure. I was all over the news. Halfway through dinner, two men walked up to our table. One tall guy in a baseball hat who had braces and his partner, who was dressed like a guy going clubbing. The tall guy identified himself as Agent Chuck, the agent who'd called me before. He asked to speak with me about the driving behavior once we'd finished eating. The moment he said that, we decided we were finished. The agents were out in front of the diner. Agent Chuck showed his badge and told me that his main goal was my protection. He said there could be threats against my life. He tapped his jacket and said if there was any danger, he would take care of it because he was on the armed team. It was all such macho posturing or an attempt to get me to trust him by putting me in a vulnerable position. He went on to say I was going to be surveilled slash followed by the FBI 24-7 for the foreseeable future 
and the reckless driving Eileen was doing would not be tolerated. He said agents are never supposed to talk to their assignments, but he felt that, given the circumstances, he had to take the team in this direction for everyone's safety. He handed me a business card with his contact info and said he'd be parked just outside Eileen's house all night, and I should call him if I needed him or needed anything for any reason. He told me I was free to go anywhere. You're damn right, I thought. But that whenever I planned to go anywhere, I should text him. He said, open communication will make everything easier. He said, if you give us a heads up, you'll be that much safer. I promise. 6-16-2013-6-18-2013. Haven't written for days. I'm so angry that I have to take a deep breath and figure out who and what exactly I'm angry at. Because it all just blurs together. Fucking feds. Exhausting interrogations where they treat me like I'm guilty and follow me everywhere. But what's worse is that they've broken my routine. Usually I'd tear off into the woods and shoot or write. But now I have a surveillance team audience wherever I go. It's like by taking away my energy and time and desire to write, they took away the last little bit of privacy I had. I need to remember everything that's happened. First, they had me bring in my laptop and copied the hard drive. They probably put a bunch of bugs on it, too. Then they had copies of all my emails and chats printed out, and they were reading me things I wrote to Ed and things Ed wrote to me and demanding I explain them. The FBI thinks that everything's a code, and sure, in a vacuum, anyone's messages look strange. But this is just how people who've been together for eight years communicate. They act like they've never been in a relationship. They were asking questions to try to emotionally exhaust me so that when we returned to the timeline, my answers would change. They won't accept I know nothing. But still, we keep returning to the timeline, now with transcripts of all my emails and chats and my online calendar printed out in front of us. I would expect that government guys would understand that Ed was always secretive about his work, and I had to accept this secrecy to be with him, but they don't. They refuse to. After a while, I just broke down in tears, so the session ended early. Agent Mike and Agent Leland offered to give me a ride back to Eileen's, And before I left, Jerry took me aside and said that the FBI seemed sympathetic. They seemed to have taken a liking to you, especially Mike. He told me to be careful, though, about being too casual on the ride home. Don't answer any of their questions. The moment we drove away, Mike chimed in with, I'm sure Jerry said not to answer any questions, but I only have a couple. Once Mike got talking, he told me that the FBI office in San Diego had a bet. Apparently, the agents had a pool going to bet how long it would be before the media figured out my location. The winner would get a free martini. Later, Sandra said she had her doubts. Knowing men, she said, the bet's about something else. 619-2013-620-2013 While the rest of the country is coming to grips with the fact that their privacy is being violated, mine's being stripped from me on a whole new level. Both thanks to Ed. I hate sending Chuck departure updates. And then I hate myself that I don't have the nerve not to send them. The worst was this one night sending a departure update that I'm leaving to meet Sandra and then getting lost on the way but not wanting to stop and ask the agents following me for help. So I was just leading them around in circles. I got to thinking maybe they'd bugged Eileen's car, so I began talking aloud in the car, thinking maybe they could hear me. I wasn't talking. I was cursing them out. I had to pay Jerry, and after I did, all I could think about was all the tax money being wasted on just following me to my lawyer's office and the gym. After the first two days of meetings, I'd already run out of the only decent clothes I had, so I went to Macy's. Agents followed me around the women's department. I wondered if they'd come into the fitting room, too, and tell me that looks good, that doesn't, green's not your color. At the fitting room's entrance was a TV blaring the news, and I froze when the announcer said, Edward Snowden's girlfriend. 
I fled the stall and stood in front of the screen, watching as my photos flicked by. I whipped out my phone and made the mistake of Googling myself. So many comments labeling me a stripper or whore. None of this is me. Just like the feds, they had already decided who I was. 622-2013 through 624-2013. Interrogation's over for now, but a tale's still following. I left the house, happy to get back in the air at this local aerial silk studio, made it to the studio and couldn't find street parking, but my tail did. He had to leave his spot when I drove out of range, so I doubled back and stole his spot. Had a phone call with Wendy, where we both said that however badly Ed hurt us, he did the right thing by trying to ensure that when he was gone, Wendy and I were together. That's why he'd invited her and been so insistent about her coming. He'd wanted us to be together in Hawaii when he went public, so that we could keep each other company and give each other strength and comfort. It's so hard to be angry at someone you love, and even harder to be angry at someone you love and respect for doing the right thing. Wendy and I were both in tears, and then we both went quiet. I think we had the same thought at the same time. How can we talk like normal people when they're eavesdropping on all our calls? 625-2013. LAX to HNL. Wore the copper-colored wig to the airport through security and throughout the flight. Sandra came with. We grabbed a gross pre-flight lunch in the food court. More TVs tuned to CNN, still showing Ed and still surreal which is the new reel for everyone, I think. Got a text from Agent Mike telling me and Sandra to come see him at gate 73. Really? He came up to LA from San Diego? Gate 73 was roped off and empty. Mike was sitting waiting for us on a row of chairs. He crossed his legs and showed us he was wearing an ankle pistol. More macho bullshit intimidation. He had paperwork for me to sign in order for the FBI to release Ed's car keys to me in Hawaii. He said two agents would be waiting for us in Honolulu with the key. Other agents would be with us on the flight. He apologized that he wasn't coming personally. Ugh. 6-29-2013. Been packing the house for days now with only minor interruptions from the FBI coming by with more forms to sign. It's torture going through everything, finding all these little things that remind me of him. I feel like a crazy woman cleaning up and then just gazing at his side of the bed. More often, though, I find what's missing, what the FBI took. Technology, yes, but also books. What they left behind were footprints, scuff marks on the walls, and dust. 6-30-2013. Waipaiu yard sale. Three men responded to Sandra's take-it-all best offer Craigslisting. They showed up to rummage through Ed's life, his piano, guitar, and weight set. Anything I couldn't bear to live with or afford to ship to the mainland. The men filled their pickup with as much as they could and then came back for a second load. To my surprise, and I think Sandra's too, I wasn't too bothered by their scavenging. But the moment they were gone the second time, I lost it. 7-2-2013. Everything got shipped today, except the futons and couch, which I'm just ditching. All that was left of Ed's stuff after the FBI raided the house fit into one small cardboard box. Some photos and his clothes, lots of mismatched socks. Nothing that could be used as evidence in court, just evidence of our life together. Sandra brought some lighter fluid and brought the metal trash can back around to the lanai. I dumped all of Ed's stuff, the photos and clothes inside, and lit a book of matches on fire and tossed it in. Sandra and I sat around while it burned and the smoke rose into the sky. The glow and the smoke reminded me of the trip I took with Wendy to Kilauea, the volcano on the Big Island. That was just over a month ago, but it feels like years in the past. 
How could we have known that our own lives were about to erupt, that volcano Ed was going to destroy everything? But I remember the guide at Kilauea saying that volcanoes are only destructive in the short term. In the long term, they move the world. They create islands, cool the planet, and enrich the soil. Their lava flows uncontrolled and then cools and hardens. The ash they shoot into the air sprinkles down as minerals, which fertilize the earth and make new life grow. Chapter 29 Love and Exile If at any point during your journey through this book, you paused for a moment over a term you wanted to clarify or investigate further and typed it into a search engine, and if that term happened to be in some way suspicious, a term like X-Keyscore, for example, then congrats. You're in the system, a victim of your own curiosity. But even if you didn't search for anything online, it wouldn't take much for an interested government to find out that you've been reading this book. At the very least, it wouldn't take much to find out that you have it, whether you downloaded it illegally or bought a hard copy online or purchased it at a brick-and-mortar store with a credit card. All you wanted to do was listen, to take part in that most intensely intimate human act, the joining of minds through language. But that was more than enough. Your natural desire to connect with the world was all the world needed to connect your living, breathing self to a series of globally unique identifiers, such as your email, your phone, and the IP address of your computer. By creating a world-spanning system that tracked these identifiers across every available channel of electronic communications, the American intelligence community gave itself the power to record and store for perpetuity the data of your life. And that was only the beginning. Because once America's spy agencies had proven to themselves that it was possible to passively collect all of your communications, they started actively tampering with them, too, by poisoning the messages that were headed your way with snippets of attack code or exploits they developed the ability to gain possession of more than just your words. Now they were capable of winning total control of your whole device, including its camera and microphone. Which means that if you're listening to this now, this sentence, on any sort of modern machine, like a smartphone or tablet, they can follow along. They can tell how quickly or slowly you're listening to the pages and whether you listen to the chapters consecutively or skip around. And they'll gladly endure looking up your nostrils and watching as you listen so long as it gets them the data they want and lets them positively identify you. This is the result of two decades of unchecked innovation the final product of a political and professional class that dreams itself your master. No matter the place, no matter the time, no matter what you do, your life has now become an open book. If mass surveillance was, by definition, a constant presence in daily life, then I wanted the dangers it posed and the damage it had already done to be a constant presence too. Through my disclosures to the press, I wanted to make this system known, its existence a fact that my country and the world could not ignore. In the years since 2013, awareness has grown, both in scope and subtlety. But in this social media age, we have always to remind ourselves, awareness alone is not enough. In America, the initial press reports on the disclosures started a national conversation, as President Obama himself conceded. While I appreciated the sentiment, I remember wishing that he had noted that what made it national, what made it a conversation, was that for the first time the American public was informed enough to have a voice. The revelations of 2013 particularly roused Congress, both houses of which launched multiple investigations into NSA abuses. 
Those investigations concluded that the agency had repeatedly lied regarding the nature and efficacy of its mass surveillance programs, even to the most highly cleared Intelligence Committee legislators. In 2015, a federal court of appeals ruled in the matter of ACLU v. Clapper, a suit challenging the legality of the NSA's phone records collection program. The court ruled that the NSA's program had violated even the loose standards of the Patriot Act and, moreover, was most probably unconstitutional. The ruling focused on the NSA's interpretations of Section 215 of the Patriot Act, which allowed the government to demand from third parties any tangible thing that it deemed relevant to foreign intelligence and terror investigations. In the court's opinion, the government's definition of relevant was so expansive as to be virtually meaningless. To call some collected data relevant merely because it might become relevant at some amorphous point in the future was unprecedented and unwarranted. The court's refusal to accept the government's definition caused not a few legal scholars to interpret the ruling as casting doubt on the legitimacy of all government bulk-collecting programs predicated on this doctrine of future relevance. In the wake of this opinion, Congress passed the USA Freedom Act, which amended Section 215 to explicitly prohibit the bulk collection of Americans' phone records. Going forward, those records would remain where they originally had been, in the private control of the telecoms, and the government would have to formally request specific ones with an FISC warrant in hand if it wanted to access them. ACLU v. Clapper was a notable victory, to be sure. A crucial precedent was set. The court declared that the American public had standing. American citizens had the right to stand in a court of law and challenge the government's officially secret system of mass surveillance. But as the numerous other cases that resulted from the disclosures continue to wend their slow and deliberate ways through the courts, it becomes ever clearer to me that the American legal resistance to mass surveillance was just the beta phase of what has to be an international opposition movement fully implemented across both governments and private sector. The reaction of techno-capitalists to the disclosures was immediate and forceful, proving once again that with extreme hazards come unlikely allies. The documents revealed an NSA so determined to pursue any and all information it perceived as being deliberately kept from it that it had undermined the basic encryption protocols of the Internet, making citizens' financial and medical records, for example, more vulnerable, and in the process, harming businesses that relied on their customers and trusting them with such sensitive data. In response, Apple adopted strong default encryption for its iPhones and iPads, and Google followed suit for its Android products and Chromebooks. But perhaps the most important private sector change occurred when businesses throughout the world set about switching their website platforms, replacing HTTP, Hypertext Transfer Protocol, with the encrypted HTTPS. The S signifies security which helps prevent third-party interception of web traffic. The year 2016 was a landmark in tech history, the first year since the invention of the Internet that more web traffic was encrypted than unencrypted. The Internet is certainly more secure now than it was in 2013, especially given the sudden global recognition of the need for encrypted tools and apps. I've been involved with the design and creation of a few of those myself through my work heading the Freedom of the Press Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to protecting and empowering public interest journalism in the new millennium. A major part of the organization's brief is to preserve and strengthen First and Fourth Amendment rights through the development of encryption technologies. To that end, the FPF financially supports Signal, an encrypted texting and calling platform created by Open Whisper Systems, and develops SecureDrop, originally coded by the late Aaron Schwartz, an open-source submission system that allows media organizations to securely accept documents from anonymous whistleblowers and other sources. 
Today, SecureDrop is available in 10 languages and used by more than 70 media organizations around the world, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, and the New Yorker. In a perfect world, which is to say in a world that doesn't exist, just laws would make these tools obsolete. But in the only world we have, they have never been more necessary. A change in the law is infinitely more difficult to achieve than a change in a technological standard. And as long as legal innovation lags behind technological innovation, institutions will seek to abuse that disparity in the furtherance of their interests. It falls to independent, open-source hardware and software developers to close that gap by providing the vital civil liberties protections that the law may be unable or unwilling to guarantee. In my current situation, I'm constantly reminded of the fact that the law is country-specific, whereas technology is not. Every nation has its own legal code, but the same computer code. Technology crosses borders and carries almost every passport. As the years go by, it has become increasingly apparent to me that legislatively reforming the surveillance regime of the country of my birth won't necessarily help a journalist or dissident in the country of my exile. But an encrypted smartphone might. Internationally, the disclosures help to revive debates about surveillance in places with long histories of abuses. The countries whose citizenries were most opposed to American mass surveillance were those whose governments had most cooperated with it, from the Five Eyes nations, especially the UK, whose GCHQ remains the NSA's primary partner, to nations of the European Union, Germany, which has done much to reckon with its Nazi and communist past, provides the primary example of this disjunction. Its citizens and legislators were appalled to learn that the NSA was surveilling German communications and had even targeted Chancellor Angela Merkel's smartphone. At the same time, the BND, Germany's premier intelligence agency, had collaborated with the NSA in numerous operations, even carrying out certain proxy surveillance initiatives that the NSA was unable or unwilling to undertake on its own. Nearly every country in the world found itself in a similar bind. Its citizens outraged. Its government complicit. Any elected government that relies on surveillance to maintain control of a citizenry that regards surveillance as anathema to democracy has effectively ceased to be a democracy. Such cognitive dissonance on a geopolitical scale has helped to bring individual privacy concerns back into the international dialogue within the context of human rights. For the first time since the end of World War II, Liberal democratic governments throughout the world were discussing privacy as the natural, inborn right of every man, woman, and child. In doing so, they were harking back to the 1948 UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights, whose Article 12 states, No one shall be subjected to arbitrary interference with his privacy, family, home, or correspondence, nor to attacks upon his honor and reputation. Everyone has the right to the protection of the law against such interference or attacks. Like all UN declarations, this aspirational document was never enforceable, but it had been intended to inculcate a new basis for transnational civil liberties in a world that had just survived nuclear atrocities and attempted genocides and was facing an unprecedented surfeit of refugees and the stateless. The EU still under the sway of this post-war universalist idealism, now became the first transnational body to put these principles into practice, establishing a new directive that seeks to standardize whistleblower protection across its member states, along with a standardized legal framework for privacy protection. In 2016, the EU Parliament passed the General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, the most significant effort yet made to forestall the incursions of technological hegemony, which the EU tends to regard, not unfairly, as an extension of American hegemony. The GDPR treats the citizens of the European Union, 
whom it calls natural persons, as also being data subjects, that is, people who generate personally identifiable data. In the U.S., data is usually regarded as the property of whoever collects it, but the EU posits data as the property of the person it represents, which allows it to treat our data subjecthood as deserving of civil liberties protections. The GDPR is undoubtedly a major legal advance, but even its transnationalism is too parochial. The Internet is global. Our natural personhood will never be legally synonymous with our data subjecthood, not least because the former lives in one place at a time, while the latter lives in many places simultaneously. Today, no matter who you are or where you are, bodily, physically, you are also everywhere, abroad, multiple selves wandering along the signal paths with no country to call your own, and yet beholden to the laws of every country through which you pass. The records of a life lived in Geneva dwell in the Beltway. The photos of a wedding in Tokyo are on a honeymoon in Sydney. The videos of a funeral in Varanasi are up on Apple's iCloud, which is partially located in my home state of North Carolina, and partially scattered across the partner servers of Amazon, Google, Microsoft, and Oracle throughout the EU, UK, South Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, and China. Our data wanders far and wide. Our data wanders endlessly. We start generating this data before we are born, when technologies detect us in utero, and our data will continue to proliferate even after we die. Of course, our consciously created memories, the records of what we choose to keep, comprise just a sliver of the information that has been wrung out of our lives, most of it unconsciously or without our consent, by business and government surveillance. We are the first people in the history of the planet for whom this is true, the first people to be burdened with data immortality. The fact that our collected data might have an eternal existence. This is why we have a special duty. We must ensure that these records of our pasts can't be turned against us or turned against our children. Today, the liberty that we call privacy is being championed by a new generation, not yet born on 9-11. They have spent their entire lives under the omnipresent specter of this surveillance. These young people, who have known no other world, have dedicated themselves to imagining one. And it's their political creativity and technological ingenuity that give me hope. Still, if we don't act to reclaim our data now, our children might not be able to do so. Then they and their children will be trapped too. Each successive generation forced to live under the data specter of the previous one subject to a mass aggregation of information whose potential for societal control and human manipulation exceeds not just the restraints of the law, but the limits of the imagination. Who among us can predict the future? Who would dare to? The answer to the first question is no one, really, and the answer to the second is everyone, especially every government and business on the planet. This is what that data of ours is used for. Algorithms analyze it for patterns of established behavior in order to extrapolate behaviors to come, a type of digital prophecy that's only slightly more accurate than analog methods like palm reading. Once you go digging into the actual technical mechanism by which predictability is calculated, you come to understand that its science is in fact anti-scientific and fatally misnamed. Predictability is actually manipulation. A website that tells you that because you like this book, you might also like books by James Clapper or Michael Hayden isn't offering an educated guess as much as a mechanism of subtle coercion. We can't allow ourselves to be used in this way, to be used against the future. We can't permit our data to be used to sell us the very things that must not be sold, such as journalism. If we do, the journalism we get will be merely the journalism we want or the journalism that the powerful want us to have, 
not the honest collective conversation that's necessary. We can't let the godlike surveillance we're under be used to calculate our citizenship scores or to predict our criminal activity, to tell us what kind of education we can have or what kind of job we can have or whether we can have an education or a job at all, to discriminate against us based on our financial, legal, and medical histories, not to mention our ethnicity or race, which are constructs that data often assumes or imposes. And as for our most intimate data, our genetic information, if we allow it to be used to identify us, then it will be used to victimize us, even to modify us, to remake the very essence of our humanity in the image of the technology that seeks its control. Of course, all of the above has already happened. Exile. Not a day has passed since August 1st, 2013, in which I don't recall that exile was what my teenage self used to call getting booted offline. The Wi-Fi died? Exile. I'm out of signal range? Exile. The self who used to say that now seems so young to me. He seems so distant. When people ask me what my life is like now, I tend to answer that it's a lot like theirs in that I spend a lot of time in front of the computer, reading, writing, interacting. From what the press likes to describe as an undisclosed location, which is really just whatever two-bedroom apartment in Moscow I happen to be renting, I beam myself onto stages around the world, speaking about the protection of civil liberties in the digital age to audiences of students, scholars, lawmakers, and technologists. Some days I take virtual meetings with my fellow board members at the Freedom of the Press Foundation, or talk with my European legal team, led by Wolfgang Kallick at the European Center for Constitutional and Human Rights. Other days, I just pick up some Burger King, I know where my loyalties lie, and play games I have to pirate because I can no longer use credit cards. One fixture of my existence is my daily check-in with my American lawyer, confidant, and all-around consigliere, Ben Wisner, at the ACLU, who has been my guide to the world as it is and puts up with my musings about the world as it should be. That's my life. It got significantly brighter during the freezing winter of 2014 when Lindsay came to visit, the first time I'd seen her since Hawaii. I tried not to expect too much because I knew I didn't deserve the chance. The only thing I deserved was a slap in the face. But when I opened the door, she placed her hand on my cheek, and I told her I loved her. Hush, she said. I know. We held each other in silence, each breath like a pledge to make up for lost time. From that moment, my world was hers. Previously, I'd been content to hang around indoors. Indeed, that was my preference before I was in Russia. But Lindsay was insistent. She'd never been to Russia, and now we were going to be tourists together. My Russian lawyer, Anatoly Kucharenya, who helped me get asylum in the country, he was the only lawyer who had the foresight to show up at the airport with a translator, is a cultured and resourceful man, and he proved as adept at obtaining last-minute tickets to the opera as he is at navigating my legal issues. He helped arrange two box seats at the Bolshoi Theater, so Lindsay and I got dressed and went, though I have to admit I was wary. There were so many people, all packed so tightly into a hall. Lindsay could sense my growing unease. As the lights dimmed, and the curtain rose, she leaned over, nudged me in the ribs, and whispered, None of these people are here for you. They're here for this. Lindsay and I also spent time at some of Moscow's museums. The Tretyakov Gallery contains one of the world's richest collections of Russian Orthodox icon paintings. The artists who made these paintings for the church were essentially contractors, I thought, and so were typically not allowed to sign their names to their handiwork or preferred not to. The time and tradition that fostered these works was not given much to recognizing individual achievement. As Lindsay and I stood in front of the icons, a young tourist, a teenage girl, suddenly stepped between us. 
This wasn't the first time I was recognized in public, but given Lindsay's presence, it certainly threatened to be the most headline-worthy. In German-accented English, the girl asked whether she could take a selfie with us. I'm not sure what explains my reaction. Maybe it was this German girl's shy and polite way of asking, or maybe it was Lindsay's always mood-improving live-and-let-live presence. But without hesitation, for once, I agreed. Lindsay smiled as the girl posed between us and took a photo. Then, after a few sweet words of support, she departed. I dragged Lindsay out of the museum a moment later. I was afraid that if the girl posted the photo to social media, we could be just minutes away from unwanted attention. I feel foolish now for thinking that. I kept nervously checking online, but the photo didn't appear. Not that day, and not the day after. As far as I can tell, it was never shared. Just kept as a private memory of a personal moment. Whenever I go outside, I try to change my appearance a bit. Maybe I get rid of my beard. Maybe I wear different glasses. I never liked the cold until I realized that a hat and scarf provide the world's most convenient and inconspicuous anonymity. I change the rhythm and pace of my walk, and, contrary to the sage advice of my mother, I look away from traffic when crossing the street. Which is why I've never been caught on any of the car dash cams that are ubiquitous here. Passing buildings equipped with CCTV, I keep my head down so that no one will see me as I'm usually seen online, head on. I used to worry about the bus and metro, but nowadays everybody's too busy staring at their phones to give me a second glance. If I take a cab, I'll have it pick me up at a bus or metro stop a few blocks away from where I live and drop me off at an address a few blocks away from where I'm going. Today, I'm taking the long way around this vast, strange city, trying to find some roses. Red roses, white roses, even blue violets, any flowers I can find. I don't know the Russian names of any of them. I just grunt and point. Lindsay's Russian is better than mine. She also laughs more easily and is more patient and generous and kind. Tonight, we're celebrating our anniversary. Lindsay moved out here three years ago, and two years ago, today, we married. We hope you've enjoyed this production of Permanent Record, a Macmillan audio production for Metropolitan Books. This title was produced by Guy Oldfield. Text copyright 2019 by Edward Snowden. Production copyright 2019 by Macmillan Audio. All rights reserved. <laughs>